0: Our gospel reading this morning comes from early in Jesus' ministry. The crowds have gathered to see Jesus heal people, to cast out demons, and to receive healing for themselves. We see here near the start of the story where Jesus is doing what we might call secondary work. He's healing the sick and casting out demons, and he's surrounded by crowds. For those of us who know, the end of the story may be a bit cynical about the crowds here. A huge crowd has come to see the SEAL people. Verse 7 tells us the crowd has come from where Lebanon is today, over to where Jordan and Syria are today, and down past Jerusalem and out into the desert. In fact, there's so many of them pressing against Jesus. Verse 8 tells us that he goes out in a boat where he can sit off the shoreline and speak to them and teach them. Verse 9 tells us they wish to touch him so they can receive a healing. It's easy to contrast the crowd that gathers in these early pages of Mark's gospel who so strongly desire physical healing with the very, very few who remain with him when he accomplishes his primary purpose of bringing spiritual healing. When he provides the way of atonement for our sins and a way of bringing us into reconciliation with God, the crowd is gone he's pretty much alone. Now, I'm not sure we can make an awful lot out of that fact, but perhaps we can draw this general observation that the size of the crowd is irrelevant to the significance of the event. Some people chase after big crowds because big crowds are marks of success. Some people chase after small crowds because many are called, but few are chosen. But it seems if you look at scripture that the size of the crowd doesn't mark the significance of the event or the importance of what's happening. Well, in the midst of this story, two different groups show up. Mark starts off with a story of Jesus' family showing up and then moves to scribes and teachers of the law who show up and then goes back to Jesus' family. Verse 21 tells us, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. The Greek word here translated as seize, everywhere else in Mark's gospel is translated as arrest. Now it's proper for the translators here to soften the translation and to give the seize instead of arrest. Because in other places, it's used from soldiers or religious soldiers, those who have the legal authority to make an arrest. So they're right to soften that term for us, but it still contains the idea of Jesus' family coming and placing Jesus into custody, removing him from the community, having his freedom restricted and being placed under their control. And his mother and his brothers come with alarm. They're afraid that Jesus is crazy. He's insane. He's a madman. I mean, who wouldn't think Jesus is crazy? Have you read some of the stuff he says? No wonder they think he's crazy, insane, a madman. He's out of his mind. My wife, Leanne, pointed me uh, this week to a story I want to share with you, someone else's story. story of a preacher named Donald Gray Barnhouse, famous Presbyterian preacher in the 1930s and 1940s. He's traveling in late summer 1939. The family is in Normandy, and he's going back and forth across the channel to England and Scotland and Ireland and, and back down to Normandy, uh, making kind of a circuit. The last week of August 1939, he crosses over to get his family for the last time. The ticket salesman says, if hey, you're planning on, on taking the, the, the channel transportation, the channel ferry back, I said, I wouldn't bet on it war is in the air, the winds of war are in the air. But he has to go get his family. He goes to Normandy, he collects his family. Sure enough, all transportation across the channel is canceled. He's gotta make his way back through an odd route. He's gotta leave Normandy, go over to Paris, and then take a train over the coastline, get on the ship, and in a roundabout way make his way back to where he's supposed to be going. And as he travels across France, the people are preparing for war. He's watching men coming out of their homes wearing uniforms they dug out of their closets to go and register in their units. He passes through towns where they're, they're testing the wet raid sirens to see what's going to happen. Families are splitting up at the airport, the husbands and fathers going one direction, the mothers and children going another direction. They're testing the blackout system Every so often electricity gets cut off in the town to see if, if those switches are all working correctly. Finally, he makes his way to England. He's passing through um, London. By now it's Friday, September 1st of 1939. The history does know what happens that day. Germany and Russia attack Poland. He's passing through the train station where children are already gathered by the thousands to be shipped out to farms and in the countryside where we'll be protected. The children are afraid and crying. The mothers are crying. The mothers are walking one way. The children are going into a group of other students they don't know to a place they don't even know. Dr. Barnhouse finally makes it across the Irish Channel to North Ireland to Belfast on the morning of September 3rd. He gets there at 4 o'clock in the morning. He makes it to his hotel. He's scheduled to preach at a big church in Belfast that morning. He knows he's not going to get any sleep, so he prepares his sermon. He shows up at the church. The pastor who's hosting him says, um, there's a lot of lads here who are going to be leaving this week, and they'll never come back alive. I hope you have something to tell them. The service started at 11 o'clock. At 11.15, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom was scheduled to go on the radio and announce what his decision would be about entering war. Church starts at 11 o'clock. The radio message is at 11.15. Barnhouse figured everybody would stay home and listen to the radio. then instead, the church is packed. The service starts on time at 11 o'clock. The hymns are sung. Prayers are made. The scriptures are being read. And 15 minutes go by, and an usher walks up with a piece of paper, hands it to the, the hosting pastor, and the prime minister has declared war on Germany. He gets up, the hosting pastor gets up, makes that announcement to the congregation, and then welcomes Dr. Barnhouse to the (laughs) pulpit. Barnhouse takes in this text, Matthew 24, 6, where Jesus says, you'll hear war and rumors of war, but don't be troubled. And he begins talking about his journey across Europe to be there that morning. He talks about men leaving their homes and marching off being on a of bus to be driven to where their unit is gathering, and he says, but don't be troubled. He talks about the air raid sirens going off in the middle of the night, he says, but don't be troubled. He talks about the blackout tests. he says, don't be troubled. He talks about little children gathering in the railroad stations, split apart from their families, and he says, but don't be troubled. He begins speaking prophetically of the fore and the terrors to come. And after everything he says, he says, but don't be troubled. And finally he says, Jesus is a madman. Jesus is insane. How can Jesus look at what even I've seen and what we all know is coming and tell us not to be troubled? Barnhouse said he's a madman Unless he really is who he says he is. If he really is God in the flesh, what he is saying is that human beings have messed up the world. The world is going to keep getting messed up because you've rejected the truth into the world. You've rejected me, but don't let your heart be troubled. No matter how horrible and terrible the news is, God has a plan that is bigger and more powerful than men's evil plans. And where else do we go to places where Jesus is a madman, unless he is who he says that he is. Well, of course his mothers and brothers think it's crazy. They would heard what he was saying. And then in verse 22, teachers come up, oh, I'm sorry, come down from Jerusalem. They've reminded us that Jerusalem is always up. The Psalms of Ascent are because you're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem from top of the mountain. So when you go anywhere from Jerusalem, you go down wherever you're going. In this case, you go down to Galilee for Jesus' is in ministry. But these are the teachers who come down from Jerusalem. This isn't the local clergy or provincial rabbis. These are the big shots from out of town. And they examine the scene. They watch what Jesus is doing. They see that thousands have been healed. That the good news of God's kingdom is being proclaimed, and they reject it. They say he's possessed. That they say he's possessed by the prince of demons. And they conclude that Jesus has power given him from hell to control demons. And to this, Jesus gives them a firm warning. I think it's interesting he doesn't cast judgment on them, but he warns them that judgment is coming. He warns them of an unforgivable sin. An unpardonable sin, an eternal sin. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This phrase itself is scary, frightening to some people. It can cause people, especially people with severe depression or other mental abilities to have terrible fear of the thought of committing an unforgivable sin, an eternal sin, an unpardonable sin. But I want to point out to you something just purely mathematical, and that is that verse 28 comes before verse 29. And verse 28 tells us, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven to the children of man. All sins will be forgiven to the children of man, except for this one unforgivable, unpardonable, eternal sin. Let me start by saying that if it might sit in the back of your mind that perhaps you've committed the unforgivable sin, the very fact that you're worried about that means you haven't. Stated most clearly, I think, by the New Testament scholar, C. D. Cranfield, who says, it's a matter of great importance pastoral that we can say with absolute confidence to anyone who is overwhelmed by the fear that he has committed the unpardonable sin, that the fact that he is so troubled is itself a sure proof that he has not committed. What have these teachers done that Jesus is warning them of? They've come to, at least for the time being, a settled conclusion. The Greek verb here is in the imperfect tense, which means it's a settled conclusion. It's not something they said once, but something they were continually saying. They had settled on saying. And what were they saying? They were saying that what is holy is evil that light is dark, that right is wrong, that true is false. And they've come to that settled conclusion. And they've not yet repented, and perhaps some of them have so hardened their hearts in that conclusion that they will not repent. You see, if you reach a subtle conclusion that holy is evil, that light is dark, that right is wrong, and true is false, even the words, unforgivable sin, are completely meaningless. Sin is nothing. There's no God to forgive. There's no Jesus to forgive. If you actually had reached that point in your spiritual life, you would never be concerned about an unforgivable sin. You would laugh at all Jesus pronounces not a judgment on them, but a warning. Don't settle in that too harshly until your heart is hardened. No longer repent and turn The believing Jesus is who he says he is. I'm afraid there are many people in our community who are reaching a subtle conclusion that holy is evil, that light is dark, what's right is wrong, and what's true is false. and I will be praying for them later, but they come to a place of repentance, of believing who Jesus says that he is. Because if you don't believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you're not gonna be worried about him telling you you have unforgivable sin. Now we know that Jesus' family repents of this attitude, although one of his brothers, James, doesn't repent until after Jesus is resurrected and appears to him in a special way. He never believed Jesus was who he said he was until Jesus appeared to him in his resurrected body. So we know Jesus' family repents. It's entirely possible that some of these teachers of the law would come to a place of repentance. It's possible, for example, that the man who becomes the apostle, Paul, was one of these teachers who comes up from Jerusalem. I'm not saying he was, I'm saying it's possible. Paul, in his own writings, calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor of the church, one who had beginning to harden his heart against the false what he saw as the false claims of Jesus. And yet, in an encounter with Jesus, that hardness of heart was broken. Now, after this harsh warning, and again, didn't pay attention to the language. I don't think it's a passage of judgment, but a warning that judgment is coming. The family comes back into the story. Jesus is sitting there. He has a group of people sitting around him. Much more, his family, in the picture, someone comes and says, your mother and your brothers are waiting for you outside. And Jesus proclaims a new family. He asks, who are my mothers? who, Who is my mother and my brothers? And he looks around and says, whoever does God's will, whoever is obedient to God, that's my mother and my sister and my brother. Whoever obeys God's will, whoever is obedient to God. Now this is not just moral obedience, obeying God's moral laws, but obeying the commands of God, commands that God gives concerning Jesus himself. Commands like, this is my beloved son. Here you he be together. If God tells you to listen to Jesus, you need to obey God's will and listen to Jesus. So it's not just moral obedience to God's moral law. It doesn't include moral obedience to God's moral law. You didn't think I'm putting all that early. Easy. There is that call to moral obedience. One of America's finest philosophers and theologians, a man named Jonathan Edwards, who's working in the 1730s, flourishing in the 1730s, about 50 years before the American Revolution, writing about what he calls moral philosophy, what he and I would probably call it ethics. He's trying to understand how people how people behave the way they do, why they behave the way that they do, and how they, how they relate to God's moral laws. And Jonathan Edwards posited two different types of virtue. He said there's one type of virtue which is common virtue, and another kind of virtue which is what he calls true virtue. There's a common virtue. Let's just take one of the virtues honesty." Edwards reaches the conclusion that most people tell mostly the truth most of the time. Most people pretty much tell the truth pretty much most of the time that he calls common virtue. Now this is no attack on the doctrine of original sin now. T.S. Lewis called the doctrine of original sin the only Christian doctrine for which there is empirical evidence. (laughs) Speaking of, just think honestly. How many parents here had to teach your kids how to lie? How I many of you had to sit your kid down one day and say, son, just telling the truth too much, it's getting pretty boring. you <laughs> you can mix it up a little bit, start blaming other people who don't exist for causing the problems, make up stuff, and give me a little variety here. Nobody, had, nobody raised their hands, nobody had to teach them how to tell lies, they had to teach kids how to tell the truth. But anyway, back to this idea of common virtues. The way Edward saw it, most people tell the truth, and most people practice these common virtues as a whole bunch of them, generosity, I mean all kinds of them, um, um, but let's to stick with honesty. They, most people tell their, the truth because they're afraid they'll get caught out in a lie. And they've tried it before, and they've they've experienced the loss of trust in someone, and so they they, they would rather go ahead and tell the truth than go through that experience of loss of trust. They might be a profound doubt. Or perhaps they're afraid that, that if everybody lied all the time, then society would be a horrible place to live. And so they play a role in the social contract, and they go along with the rules, and they pretty much tell the truth pretty much most of the time. Or in other words, those people tell the truth because they're afraid not to. They're honest out of fear. Or another possibility, Edwards gave for all these virtues, is um, that they tell the truth because they don't want people to call them a liar. They want, When they walk down the street, they want people to say, that's a good man. That's an honest one. If that man gives you his word, he'll follow through on it. I'm going to tell the truth because I want to protect my reputation. And they're honest people out of pride. And most people, Edwards included, follow these common virtues like honesty out of fear and pride. Now he said it's good they do that because as it turns out, it is nice to live in a society where people pretty much tell the truth pretty much most of the time. But here's the problem. The more they tell the truth based on fear and pride, they feed fear and pride. And what are the two reasons why people tell lies? Fear and pride. They want to get out of trouble. They're afraid of getting into trouble. Why they want to exaggerate their accomplishments or their importance. And by feeding fear and pride and behaving right, telling the truth, they're feeding their fear and pride and it all leads to a collapse of the heart. The whole thing falls apart. You feed fear and pride until it breaks, and you're dishonest. But then there's true virtue. People who are truly virtuous tell the truth because it's the right thing to do. How do they know it's the right thing to do? Because God says. so. And that, Edward says, is a true virtue. Now I know what most of you are thinking. Oh, great. Because most of the time, I tell the truth out of fear and pride. And not out of true virtue. Take a deep breath. I know. That's the human condition. That's the human condition. But here's what Edwards says. Edward says, "As you live your Christian life as you walk through your Christian life, every time you take communion, every time you pray, every time a Bible verse goes through your mind, every time a snippet of a song, a Christian song goes through your mind, every time Jesus touches your memory or your mind, that's a call on you to move that dial just half a millimeter and can say. Just move it just a click more towards true virtue. And he said, that's the picture of Christian moral development, and Christian growth. That over time, more and more you want to do what's right because it's right. Not like flipping the switch all the time at once. But over time, a practice developed process of moving that dial more and more to where I want to do what's right because it's right. That's what Jesus says. Those who obey the will of my Father, those who obey my my Father's will, they are my mother and my sisters and my brothers. In Jesus' name, amen.